One, thank you for being here tonight. We're going to have a brief word of prayer, and then we'll get looking at our fourth hymn in our hymnology class. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we get to look at songs um, that have blessed the church for some time now, uh, songs that were well-written, Lord, by imperfect people, people that you have used in spite of their sin. Lord, you are ultimately the hero of all scripture and of all history. And so we ask that you would bless our time, help us to rejoice in you, help us to understand the songs that we sing so that we may not sing them with empty minds, but sing them with hearts and minds that are focused on the truth of your scripture as we vocally express these things in melody. And so may you be honored and glorified, and may we be edified in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight's hymn that we're looking at is one that a lot of people know well. It is called Before the Throne of God. And um, this song was composed quite a while ago, as, as many of the songs that we're looking at. This one was composed in 1860, so that puts it at 160 years old. And while this song has been around a while, it really didn't become popular until 1997. So think about a song that has been around for 137 years that doesn't become popular until some time later. There was a lady named Vicki Cook, and she was with Sovereign Grace Music. She composed a new tune for the song, and that's the tune that we all know, the tune that we are familiar with, the tune that made the song popular. But before we get into the theology, before we look at the music of the hymn, I want to give you a brief biography of the original author, of the song. Her maiden name, Charity Lees Smith. It's likely a name that you have not heard of. Uh, While she wrote many songs, this is one of the most popular of hers. But again, the reason that this song is popular is not because of her, uh, the original tune that it had, but because of the tune being rewritten. But in her time, she published many songs. Some of the songs that she wrote uh, found their way into a hymnal. A hymnal, if you don't know, it's a songbook. Usually three to 400 songs are in there, and usually they're in the back of most church chairs or most, most church pews, a lot of them, and they contain songs that the congregation sings. But um, a lot of her songs found her way into a hymnal that a pastor named J.C. Ryle put together. This hymnal was called Spiritual Songs. Now, if you're unfamiliar with J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor in the Reformed Evangelical Protestant Church in England in the 1800s. So a very well-known pastor. He was regarded and known for his preaching and for his writings. He wrote commentaries on the Gospels and quite a few other works as well. well. Um, I've read two of his books. They're smaller books, but I read Simplicity in Preaching, which was a great book for preachers. And I also read The Duties of Parents, which is a great book, and I would highly recommend that for those with kids. He's very pastoral in his writings, and when you read him, it feels very personal, like you're talking uh, to someone with wisdom who's lived a full life. Uh, the, the books that he writes are very helpful, very insightful, and wise. And the only point in mentioning J.C. Ryle is simply to say that a well-respected pastor and theologian, a well-respected defender of the faith, he saw value in Charity's songs, and he, he included them in his hymnal. She wrote some good things. Now, Charity Lees Smith was born in 1841. She was a pastor's kid. Her father 
his, uh, his name was Dr. George Sidney Smith, and he was a reverend. Um, he was the pastor of a church in Ireland, and at least based on the hymn that we're going to look at tonight, you can tell that she grew up with some uh, sound theology uh, because it's included in this hymn. She wrote some good things. Charity Lees Smith um, wrote quite a few hymns, but again, this is the one that's popular. Now, if you were to find this song in an older hymn book or older publications, you'd likely find it maybe under a couple of different names. Sometimes the song was published with the title, uh, The Advocate, that, that before it became known as Before the Throne of God, it was uh, called The Advocate. Um, and I would say that virtually every Reformed church, and even some that aren't, they have this song as a staple in their music. When, uh, when us pastors and uh, other leaders of the church, when we go to the Shepherds Conference, I'm surprised um, that they even have to put the words up on the screen because the song is that popular. And there are probably parts of the song that you know well and that you don't have to uh, look up to see the words. You're reciting maybe even most of it by memory um, as the tune is played out. It is that well known. Charity Smith's songs were sometimes published under different names for her as well, and there's a, a reason for that. Sometimes her songs were published under her maiden name, uh, Charity Lee Smith, sometimes under her nickname, uh, Cherry Smith, Cherry being a nickname for Charity, of course. But some of her songs were published under the name uh, Charity's, uh, Charity Lee's Bancroft, which was her married name after her first husband. All in all, Charity was married three times, and her life is an odd account for someone whose songs seem to show uh, that she was grounded in God's word. So when we go over her biography, you're going to hear someone who knew God's word well, but her life story is, is quite remarkable, and um, it, sometimes it seems at odd with how a Christian should live. Her first marriage was to a gentleman named Arthur Bancroft in 1869. Bancroft, he was a naval officer, so he served in the Navy. He had some health issues, and unfortunately, he died uh, 12 years later. He died in 1881, and so they had a, uh, a lengthy marriage, 12 years. Um, but from this first marriage, he left her quite a bit of wealth. And so she inherited this wealth from her husband, and eventually, and it didn't take long, she became involved with another man, and she married him in November of 1881. So the same year that her first husband died, she's married. Uh, he died in April. She's remarried again in November of 1881. So just seven months after her husband passed away, she's remarried a second time. This gentleman's name is Edmund Parkinson. He was a surgeon, and he had lost his wife recently that same year as well. So they had both just suffered the loss of a spouse Parkinson had recently filed for bankruptcy that same year, uh, her second husband, in May of 1881. And it might be, it may be that this marriage came about so quickly because each of them needed comfort in their spouse's passing. So uh, they both suffered great loss and they likely found comfort in each other's lives, in each other's shared experience and the mutual comfort and consolation that they gave each other. Remember also that Charity... When her husband died, her first husband, she acquired quite a bit of wealth, and Parkinson had just filed bankruptcy. So you have two people whose spouses are gone. 
one person who's rich, the other person who filed for bankruptcy. So it might be that this marriage was also an opportunity for him not just, just to receive comfort and emotional support, but maybe some financial stability uh, back into his life as he married Charity. Parkinson, her second husband, was an alcoholic, and he had suffered heat stroke. He also suffered uh, delirium tremens, um, which is related, if you don't know what that is, uh, when someone is addicted to alcohol for a long time, when they stop the intake of alcohol, they begin to experience and suffer physical effects when they, when they quit it, when they're addicted to it and they stop. Sometimes, for short, it's called the DTs. You may know that uh, phrase. But when you are addicted to alcohol for a long time and you just stop, you begin to shake. You begin to experience confusion. Sometimes hallucinations can happen. Uh, you can have irregular heartbeat. You can sweat. And all kinds of crazy things happen as you experience the withdrawal of alcohol. Now, when I, when I was a teenager, my grandfather... Uh, would habitually, and he just passed away, I'm doing his funeral in a couple of days, but uh, I remember as a teenager, every day after work, he would habitually buy a 12-pack of beer, and he would drink them all before passing out and falling asleep. Now, heavy drinking, heavy drinking is defined as 15 drinks a week, right? 15 drinks a week, and he was almost hitting that every day. And so um, I remember there were times where if he didn't get alcohol, he would begin to shake even that day. It didn't take very long uh, for that uh, withdrawal to set in. And so when you look at somebody like Charity's second husband, he was in bad shape financially, bad shape physically, and bad shape emotionally. And uh, unfortunately, though, this marriage would be short-lived. Charity would file for divorce uh, sometime between 1882 and 1884. So even if we go the long route, 1884, it's within three years uh, one to three years that she is filing divorce, filing for divorce. So second husband, divorce. After their divorce, Mr. Parkinson would be admitted to an asylum, which uh, on two separate occasions, okay? If you don't know what an asylum is, that's today what we would call a mental hospital or a psychiatric ward. And uh, in 1891, uh, sadly, Parkinson committed suicide by poisoning himself with hydrogen cyanide. Now, I can't comment on the finer details of their marriage because there's not a lot of information out there um, about her. There just isn't. But on the surface, it seems like there was no biblical grounds for divorce uh, in Charity's part, okay? Um, and I would imagine if she were part of our church and wanting just to leave her husband because there's irreconcilable differences or issues, that uh, she may have been under what we would call church discipline because... Uh, uh, scripture uh, allows for uh, divorce and separation in the cases of adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever, and this doesn't seem to be the case. But we move on to her third marriage. After Charity divorced Mr. Parkinson, she took back her uh, married name from her first husband. So now she goes by Charity Bancroft again. At this point, she relocates to San Francisco, a city we all know well, north of here, and she relocated there because her brother lived there in the Bay Area. This is around the year 1887. While in Frisco, she began to put a lot of time and money and energy into prison ministry. It's a great thing. And she even did some ministry at San Quentin, all right? Very popular prison where we know the hardest of criminals go. While in Frisco, um, she opened up in 19, I'm sorry, in 1889, she opened up a boarding home. This boarding home was for ex-convicts, 
and she wanted to help them get reestablished back into society. So this ministry started out small, it began to grow, and several times she had to upgrade into bigger locations in order to help those that were seeking her help. And this is how she met her third husband. His name was Frank DeCheney. Frank DeCheney. Now, Frank, he's a character, served two years in San Quentin for forgery and attempting to kill a police officer, okay? But he's served his time. After being released from prison, he sought help at Charity's homes, right, the boarding homes that she had, and he soon found himself in close contact with Charity. Mind you, at this time in her life, she is 64, and he is 36 years old, right? That's not necessarily simple, but for most people, that would make you go, hmm, right? Uh, Such a large age difference. Again, not that it's necessarily wrong, but uh, I can tell you from what I've read in the accounts that Charity's brother, he wasn't too thrilled about the situation, as most family members would probably not be. Um, Again, it's not necessarily wrong, but it just makes you wonder what's going on. He's not too thrilled about the situation. He probably suspected something sketchy on the part of Mr. DeCheney, maybe something sketchy on the part of his motives. And so he tried to dissuade Charity from pursuing this relationship. Now, let me ask you, what generally happens when you try to discourage two people from seeing each other, right? It goes the wrong way a lot of times, right? Most people, when they feel that they're in love and they're attracted to another person, the last thing they want to hear is you shouldn't like that person. And because of their affections and feelings, they seem to tune out wisdom. They seem to tune out the advice of those that love them, and they follow their heart rather than following wise counsel. That doesn't always happen, but it seems like that happens more often than not. And so, guess what? It drove them closer together, all right? Had the opposite effect of what her brother wanted to do. Charity ends up buying uh, Frank a ranch, and they end up getting married in June of 1891, onto her third husband. This marriage, because their family was against it, it led to her family and her being estranged, that is separated and not in contact with each other and her friends, but this didn't seem to bother her. Ten years later, their marriage is not doing so good. There's an argument, don't know what about, but they separated in 1901. Frank, he moved to Reno, Nevada. Most of us are familiar with that city name. For the next 14 years, they remained married, but separated, not living together. Finally, in 1915, Frank filed for divorce. The court granted him divorce on the grounds that Charity had abandoned him and deserted him. DeCheney would go on to state, and in the court records it was stated that they had irreconcilable differences, differences that they could not work out. And they were in relation to this, his agnosticism and her strong religious beliefs. So she married a guy who didn't know whether there was a God or not, much less did he confess that Jesus Christ was Lord. So she married an unbeliever, and this is uh, what their, their differences were about. She deserted him, left him out high and dry. He finally uh, files for divorce, and the court grants it. Uh, Charity, she died in Oakland, California at the age of 81 in June of 1923. What an odd story, and this is most of the history that's recorded of her because it's, it's in records, Right. Brothers and sisters, I have to confess, when I set out to write 
uh, a lesson on this hymn, I knew nothing about the author. And it's, uh, it was a little discouraging, like, wow, here's an, ins- uh, an inspiring song based on Scripture before the throne of God, and it was not necessarily an inspiring account of a Christian life. Parts of it were great when I did the research, like her prison ministry, her hymn writing, but other parts were not so much inspiring, like a Christian marrying an unbeliever and then deserting him, okay? I'm not saying that she didn't do godly Christ-exalting things, because certainly she did. But for the most part, this is the bulk of the information that can be dug up on the author of this hymn. And in this song, we see that someone has great theology, a great understanding of Scripture and the book of Hebrews. Here's someone who seems to have a great grasp on the gospel, This person is capable of putting pen to paper and writing in such a way that it is impacting Christians even today. But, to be frank, no no pun intended, brother, no pun intended by her third husband's name, to be frank, she may not have been the most discerning person or the wisest person when it came to building relationships, right? As you hear that story, you're like, gosh, what is she doing with her life, right? Right? She didn't listen to wise counsel of her family. She chose to marry at least a couple of ungodly guys and definitely one unbeliever, okay? Now, the question I ask is, does that mean that we cannot sing her songs? Right? It doesn't mean that at all. We can sing her songs. I think, and and one of the reasons I wanted to do this class was also in part to destroy some of the myths or the false sense of godliness that we heap upon ourselves when it comes to singing songs. I think there's a false notion that in order to benefit from well-written songs, good spiritual songs, uh, that they must have an author with a spotless background, right? They must all, they must all be uh, the perfect model Christian. And if that were the case, then... Uh, then we could receive no benefit from any songwriter, any author, or any pastor because we all have sin in our lives, every single one of us. Now, none of that is an excuse to allow sin. It's just the truth that God uses sinners to accomplish his work in this world. If you look at Scripture, we see that there's a guy named Abraham. He told a half lie about his wife, right, and He said that it was his sister, and that almost got her into a dicey situation. If you go back and read the account, we don't have time to cover all that. But yet God used a a guy named Abraham. Jacob was a schemer and a swindler. He swindled his brother out of his blessing, yet God used Jacob. Moses murdered an Egyptian, buried him in the sand, yet we see that God used Moses. David murders a guy so that he can have that guy's wife, yet God used David. Jonah heard the direct call from God to go and preach to Nineveh, and Jonah runs the other way, yet God used him. Matthew was a tax collector, a traitor in the eyes of his fellow citizens, yet God used him. And Paul was a Christian hunter, yet God used him. And you and I, were pretty big sinners, You might think you're better than me. I might think I'm better than you. But before God, we are all on the solid ground of being declared sinners in his eyes. Yet God can, 
And God often does use us in his kingdom purposes. Again, I think so often we look at the people in the Bible, not just history, but we look at people in the Bible and we think that they are the heroes of the redemption story. Let me tell you that the people that we read about in the Bible are not the heroes. Ultimately, God is the hero. A proper reading of scripture will lead you to see that sinners, and this is what's encouraging about history and the Bible, that sinners cannot stop the kingdom of God. They cannot stop the plan of God to redeem people. And that is part of the point of scripture, that God cannot be stopped when it comes to rescuing people. The people in the Bible couldn't stop it, and we cannot stop it in spite of our sin. It is God working in and through and around sinful people to accomplish his redemption plan. God is the hero, not them. And God is the hero, not us, all right? God is the hero, not Charity Lees Smith, the one who had three marriages and married unbelievers and deserted them, who wrote a wonderful hymn before the throne of God. God is the hero, okay? Uh, Charity, (laughs) I wrote her name, Charity Lees Smith, Bancroft, Parkinson's, DeCheney, right? If she kept all her names, that's what her name would be. So look at what God does in spite of sinners in the Bible, all right? Real history. Look what God does in spite of the terrible decisions we see some of the composers of these songs. Look what God does in spite of what we do in our lives. God is the hero in the world. He was the hero in the 1800s when this song was written, and he's the hero now in 2024 as we sing a song written by his sister with some questionable choices in life. So I hope you can see that. Biblical history, it's our history. It shows us God's work, and God hasn't changed how he works. If, if God had somehow written us into the Bible story, and we are tangentially, meaning that this is part of our story, but if our names were recorded, our sinful deeds, some of them would be recorded, yet we would see God still working in and through us, over, uh, overcoming evil, changing the world, saving people, and we just be characters in his story of what he's doing. He's the hero, okay? Um, those of us who make sinful choices, who are weak in the faith at times, who are disobedient to God, who don't know everything, we can be confident that God will accomplish his will in spite of us. And so, again, I, th- I think sometimes as Reformed folk, and I love Reformed theology, I love Reformed people, but I think sometimes we have too high of a standard when it comes to the songs we sing, uh, a faulty s- standard. Just like the Pharisees had a faulty sense of righteousness, sometimes we go there and we get a little bit, uh, we go beyond what God's Word says. And it's good to be discerning. We want to sing the truth. We want to sing Scripture. But often we put up the secondary and tertiary levels of separation We think, well, it's got to be an old song if we sing it. We can only sing old songs. What about when these people sang the songs? They weren't old. They were new when they were first written, right? So that can't be a standard for whether a song is good or bad. Or we think, it's got to be written by a Reformed person. Well, this person was Reformed. She came from a Reformed preacher's family. And yet, here her life is just questionable in so many different ways. We think the song can't be written by this denomination because there's a bad apple in there. I promise you that if you were God and you could see the heart of every hymn writer and examine their lives, you would see great sinners. And in a false sense of holiness, you might say, we can't sing their songs because they were sinners. And that's just not true, okay? We are called to sing truth that exalts God. And we are called to sing songs that help us to delight in him. 
I promise you this, only sinners write good hymns and spiritual songs. Only sinners do that. Only sinners write good sermons. The goodness of those things does not come from the person, though, but from the good God that we serve in his good word. Are you with me on that? That's where the goodness comes from. Not in and of the person themselves, but because they are made in God's image and God works in and through them to do what he's going to do. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. Paul, in the book of Philippians, in other books, he's in prison, and this is what he writes in Philippians 1. The scripture will be up on the screen. Now, he's talking about some pretty bad people here. He's in prison, and he mentions good people and bad people, some Christians and some others who aren't. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Can you imagine if you were given the opportunity to share the gospel and you're like, I'm going to do it to, I'm going to share the gospel to make this person envious of me, all right? I'm going to do this because I'm in competition. You're not preaching for the glory of God. You're preaching out of sinful motives. That's what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, meaning the ones who do it out of goodwill, those that are close with him and love him, they preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former, that's, that's the rivalries, uh, rivals that he has, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. What's their motive? It's all about them. Not God's glory, not the benefit of others. It's their simple motives for their own puffing up, right? Not sincerely. They don't even preach it sincerely. They don't even necessarily believe these things. Not sincerely, but but they think if they preach it, they're going to afflict me in my imprisonment. They are preaching Christ to hurt Paul, to make him envious. Look what we're doing and you can't. Look, people are listening to us. They can't hear you because you're in prison. Whatever that may be going through their selfish minds. He says, what do I make of this? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether they're faking it or they're being sincere, that Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Is that a marvelous statement? They got bad motives. They're not even unbelievers. They're speaking the truth. Oh, man. He doesn't necessarily say I'm going to team up with them when I get out of here. But he's rejoicing in the goodness that the truth that they proclaim is there, regardless of whether they're unbelievers, regardless of whether they're enemies, regardless of whether they mean it or not. The goodness and the value is in the truth of God's word. So that's what we see, two groups, two groups of people. Some are sketchy, some are not. Some are rivals, some are friends. But what matters to Paul is that Christ is being proclaimed. Again, doesn't mean Paul's gonna team up, but his point is there's power in the gospel, not in the people. And as we've been going through our hymnology class, we've seen that the past few weeks, right? And the, we saw a guy who said he got the marks of Jesus' crucifixion on his body. That's a little sketchy. Okay, I'm not superstitious. And then the guy said he got him, and then he tries to hide him from everybody, right? We saw about the guy who was a slave owner. We've seen some pretty sketchy people, okay? And um, they're sinners. They're trying to be conformed to the word of God. Yet the grace of God we see over and over again is greater than any of these wonderful hymn writers. That is the foolishness of God at work. In our best wisdom... We'd like to see perfect people doing perfect things for the kingdom of God, right? We'd like to see that. 
The foolishness of God is always better than the top wisdom of men. The weakness of God is always stronger than the strongest of men. And this is how God ensures that he alone gets the glory. That's how God ensures that he gets the glory. He works through imperfect people, but through it all, we rejoice that the truth is being proclaimed. Again, had Charity been a member of our church, because of the way that she deserted and left her husbands and abandoned them and all that, she likely would have been brought under church discipline and been called to repentance. Who knows what her life might have been like if she was involved in a church that held her accountable. It doesn't seem that she was, though. Nevertheless, she wrote a wonderful song that has been blessing the global church for the past several decades, okay? Um, it's been blessing the church for longer, right? For 100 and, uh, what do we say, 160 years, something like that. But again, this song didn't become popular, even though it was written in the 1860s, this song didn't become popular until 1997 when the tune was written and it became very popular and now Reformed churches are singing it everywhere. Now, this song, it was originally written in uh, six verses, okay? Six verses. These are the same six verses that are in the song that we sing now, but the verses were combined in pairs. And so when we sing the song, there's only three verses. And on the music sheet that I gave you, um, if you look at one side or the other, uh, you will see that there are three verses, but originally these were separated into six verses. Um, but there are three pairs now, and this is the modern way that people sing it. And so let's look at the theology of this song. We're going to look at the theology, and um, let's see, was there, I think there was one other, yeah, I'll tell you a little side note about this song, a little trivia. You guys know the famous Spurgeon, uh, famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, right? In his last public speech, right before he died, he gave a final public speech, and he died, uh, I believe, about a month later. He actually quotes this song, this hymn. And so if you ever read the very last thing that Charles Spurgeon ever spoke publicly, he uh, quotes this song, then he passes away. So even uh, one of the most regarded preachers, the Prince of Preachers, uh, loved this song and felt it worth quoting. But let's look at the theology of this song and see what it says. All right, we got a brief background of this lady. Let's read verse 1. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That, that was originally verse 1. Verse 2, which is now part of verse 1, says, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Now, this first verse it takes its theology and excuse from a few verses in Scripture. The first is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. You'll see that up on the screen. Let me read it to you. And notice the similarities because this is where it's taken from. Since we have a great high priest, uh, sorry, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us 
then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, that we may receive and find grace in help or to help in time of need. So this first verse of the song, it's, it's meant to provide us comfort. It's meant to provide us encouragement. And it's meant to invite us to have uh, confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith in him should not be shaken. And to do so, um, the verse takes its cues, the song, right, takes its cues from this scripture in, the, uh, in Hebrews. But Hebrews is pointing us back to the Old Testament, okay? Hebrews is a massive exposition and explaining of the Old Testament sacrifices and priesthood and a bunch of other things. But its ultimate point is to show that we can trust Christ as Lord, that he is far superior than all the things that we read about in the Old Testament. He's far superior than the priests. He's far superior than angels. He's far superior than Moses. Uh, He is far superior than everything. And in Hebrews 4, we are told that we have not just a high priest, but a great high priest, And that's Jesus, the Son of God. Scripture says in Hebrews, he passed through the heavens, right, into the presence of God the Father. Right, we're going to make a connection to all this. And this is meant to draw our attention back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. And that's in Leviticus chapter 23. This was this day, Yom Kippur, all right, uh, the Day of Atonement. It is Israel's most holy day of the year. On this day, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel and the high priest only, he was allowed at this one time of the year to enter what is called the most holy place or the holy of holies, which was in the tabernacle or the temple. And in the most holy place is where God's presence dwelled. Okay? The high priest could only enter in there, after making purification for himself, after cleansing himself, after putting on special clothing and other things, after a rope was tied to his feet and bells put around the bottom of his outfit, that way if he died in there, because he wasn't cleansed before God, they could pull him out, right? If they didn't hear the bells ringing anymore, it meant he was fell dead and he's not moving, okay? On that day, the high priest, he was to do a ritual. He was to take two goats for this ceremony, for this ritual, One goat was called the scapegoat. The other was to be sacrificed. And I'll explain what these two goats do. The high priest would take the blood of the sacrificed goat, the uh, the goat that was slaughtered, and he would enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies. He would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, all right? Uh, the, The lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat, okay? Let me explain this. The Ark is a chest. The lid is called the mercy seat. Now, in ancient cultures, in ancient cultures, the kings of nations, they sat on their thrones and they had a footstool or a chest somewhere where the king would rest their feet. They have the throne, they're sitting, and they rest their feet on a chest, on a footstool. Inside this chest, inside this footstool, were important documents like contracts or treaties or covenants that these kings made with other nations. You tracking me so far? Okay. And what we need to know is that God is enthroned where? In heaven. And scripture says that earth is his what? His footstool. Okay. And the Ark of the Covenant or the chest of the covenant 
is where God's feet rest. And this is where heaven is connected to earth. God's presence in heaven, but he's also present on earth amongst Israel. And they are connected together by the, by the very person of God. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, inside the footstool, inside the chest, is where God has his agreement with who? Israel. Do you see that picture? What God is trying to help Israel understand? His documents are in there as they pertain to the nation of Israel, and they are inscribed on two tablets. All right? Yes, Lord, we are aware you are in control of your creation. Don't know if you felt that earthquake. All right? Inside the ark, let's make sure that everybody's okay before we go any further. All right. Aren't earthquakes a good reminder of who's enthroned in heaven? Inside the ark were the tablets that God gave to Moses containing his law. They were the tablets of God's covenant with Israel, hence the name the ark or the chest of the covenant. God's holiness is shown in his law, the reflections of his nature. And these tablets reminded Israel of what God required of them. That is that they were to be holy as God is holy. But it's also, it also reminded them that they felt short, they felt short of God's glory and his perfection, that they all deserve to die before God. And so this high priest would enter into the presence of God and he would plead for God's mercy based on the contract that he made with them. Okay? Plead for God's mercy by sprinkling blood on the lid or the covering of this mercy seat. All right? The covering of this. And this. Uh, the, the chest, which is called the mercy seat. And this blood was the blood of a spotless animal, one with no disease, no sickness, no blemishes. And it was supposed to die in the place of the Israelites. It was to serve as a substitute sacrifice for Israel. They were going to die, but this animal died in its place. That's what the high priest did on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is what this song is talking about. And we'll get to, we'll show how this is connected in verse 1. The other goat was a scapegoat. The high priest would take the scapegoat and he would place his hands on this second goat and it would signify that, God, that, that the sins of Israel were being removed from them and placed on this goat. And then this goat was banished. It was taken outside of the city walls and banished and sent into the wilderness. And this is how God's dealt with Israel's sin. A substitute sacrifice and imputation, number two. Substitute sacrifice and imputation. That is to say, one goat died in their place, that substitutionary sacrifice, and the other goat took Israel's sin upon itself, which is imputation. But it was the high priest who went into God's presence and made intercession for Israel. When Charity wrote this song, she was using Hebrews in the way that the author uses it to draw our attention to Christ, who died in our place, who who had our sin imputed to him, placed on him. So Jesus is the scapegoat, but he's also the substitute sacrifice, okay? Who died in our place. And it wasn't a human, a normal human priest who went into the presence of God to offer his blood in order that we might receive mercy. But it was Christ who didn't just have our sin transferred to him, but who was Jesus who was taken outside the city walls because Jesus wasn't crucified within the city. Like the scapegoat, he was taken outside the city walls as a scapegoat and crucified for us. And it was Jesus himself 
who went into heaven, who went into the holy of holies, who went into the very presence of God to intercede for us and offer his lifeblood instead of our own. That means he went before God to intervene for us in a greater fashion than the Old Testament high priest did. They went into a building. Jesus went directly before the throne of God. I have a great high priest before the throne of God. Not just his footstool, but the very throne. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest is who I have pleading for me. And so uh, this is what she's writing about based on Hebrews, okay? This high priest, according to Hebrews 7, is Jesus. And Scripture says in, um, in Hebrews 7 that he always lives uh, to intercede for us. He always lives to intercede for us. He has not stopped. What has Jesus been doing for the past 2,000 years? Scripture says he's been interceding for believers. That's one of his current ministries. He ever lives to plead for me, and that's what the song says. I'm going to explain a little bit more what intercession means, but let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7 says this in verse 23. The former priests, referring to Israel's priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That means if one died, there had to be a succession for their entire history. Hundreds, if not thousands of priests, all right? But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus doesn't die, so he continues on as priest. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what she's writing about. I have a strong and great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's based on this verse right here. He always lives to make intercession or to plead for me. Every day, every hour, every moment of our sinful lives, Jesus is interceding for us on our behalf. And it's on the basis, he's pleading based on the basis of his sacrifice and his receiving our sin on his body so that he suffered for us. This is why we must hold to our confession. The confession that Jesus died and rose again for sinners. We must never stop confessing that and believing that because he is only pleading our salvation based on what he has done for those who trust him. So let's never let go of that confession. Since Jesus ever lives to plead for us and always pleading our salvation based on what he's done, no one will ever be able to banish us from the presence of God. That's what th- th- this song is powerful. And since uh, he prays for us, that's part of intercession, he's praying for us, and he constantly holds up his saving work before the Father as the basis, and nothing else, the basis for our salvation. He makes intercession. That's what he's doing. And that should inspire adoration for our Lord. That's what he's doing right now. This very moment, Jesus is interceding for you and for me. Every moment of our lives, that should provide comfort for us in the darkest hour of our lives. It should cause us to flee our sin and follow our Savior. That's verse 1. What a powerful thing. She takes in, what is it, eight or nine lines and just wraps up a huge summary of Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 7, which is all based on the Old Testament. We look at verse 2. When Satan tempts me to despair or to worry and tells me of the guilt within, because we all have sin and guilt, right? She says, upward I look and I see him there. Who? 
the one who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Surely Satan tempts us in a lot of ways, but it's not him only. Temptation comes for our own flesh too. So we don't want to give him all the credit. We often think of temptation as things like being tempted to commit adultery or to steal or to lie. And those are legitimate temptations. But we often forget, based on this song and what we know in Scripture, that we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness and salvation. We can be tempted to doubt that God has actually saved us as he promised. Um, we can be tempted to, be, to disbelieve his word. And according to the song, we are often tempted and can be tempted to, to doubt the effectiveness of Christ's ability to save us completely. At times, we can think that our sin is greater than our Savior. I don't know if you've ever felt that doubt, that you sinned and you're thinking, there's no way God would save someone like me. I cannot possibly be saved. No way. I don't know if you've ever sinned and felt that it was that bad that God would never forgive you. And so you resort to some sort of self-punishment or self-torture to try to atone for your sin. And that's putting salvation in your hands, not God's hands. When you think, God will be pleased with me, but I, I, need, to, I need to punish myself first. Rather than knowing that your sin was placed upon Jesus and he was punished fully on your behalf. Okay, That's Satan's temptation. That's Satan's temptation to get you to say God is not loving enough to save you. He's not powerful enough to forgive that particular sin. He wants you to stop trusting Jesus as Savior because you think your sin is too gross. Charity says in her hymn that when she's tempted to think like this, what does she do? She looks upward to heaven and she sees Jesus who made an end to all her sin. And in the song, just like we read in Scripture, we can say that our just God, our just God who must punish sin, he's righteous and just, he is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. To look on him and punish him and to look at me and pardon me because of what Jesus has done. The sinless Savior died on our behalf. Justice demands death. God is satisfied in Christ with his death and his becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God and be pardoned. Look at what scripture says in Romans 8. In Romans 8, we read this in verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring, or who is going to bring any charge, any accusation against God's elect? That is those who have God has called to salvation and chosen. Scripture says it is God who justifies. It is God who declares people righteous based on Jesus giving them his righteousness. Verse 34 says, who is it to condemn? Who can condemn you and condemn me? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed doing what? Interceding for us. Notice that these are rhetorical questions. They don't deserve an answer. Paul already knows the answers. Who can bring a charge of unforgiven sin against you or me and say that this particular sin is not forgiven? All right? Who can stand before God and say, God, Josh has unforgiven sin in his account. Ramel has unforgiven sin in his account. And definitely Albert has unforgiven sin in his account, right? Who can stand before God and accuse that of being a reality? And 
you need to damn them to hell, God. Who can do that? Paul's reply is this. He says, God justifies. God declares people righteous by faith in Christ. Paul then asks, well, who can condemn? And the answer should be understood and automatically known. No one can condemn because Christ was condemned in our place. That's what Scripture's getting at. Then he was raised to life so that he, so that he can now intercede for us. His saving work is what he pleads as the basis of our always and eternally being justified and forgiven. And the author of Hebrews, along with Paul, is basically saying that God's salvation is foolproof, but only in Christ. So when you're scared that your next sin, however gross it is, however grievous it is, when you're scared that it has removed you from the grace of God, look upward to Jesus, who died for all your sin the ones that you will commit and have committed. Believe that God has justified you and that Christ now intercedes for you. That's what he's doing to comfort you and assure you that you are his. Have assurance in what he has done, not what you are doing. That's the point of scripture and the point of this song. What's amazing about Romans 8 is that it shuts down any notion that anyone could dare stand before God and make a legitimate case that any true believer's have unforgiven sin in their account. It shuts that down. Why not? Because Christ is actively living, working day and night, every second of your life, interceding for you. Nevertheless, what's crazy is we have this enemy, this stupid enemy that tries to do the opposite of what Jesus is doing. He's trying to do what God says can't be done. Look at Revelation 12. Verse 10 says this, John the Revelator says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What does Satan do day and night in every moment, in every second of his life? He's trying to accuse you before God. He's trying hard to find unforgiven sin in your account. And anytime we sin, he says, look, God, Josh just sinned. Rachel just sinned. Aaron just sinned. They did it again. Look, he had a rough day. He didn't glorify you in thought, word, or deed. In fact, the only time he really glorifies you when he's in the sleep. And even then, they have bad dreams, okay, that they shouldn't have, okay? That's what he does day and night. He's not interceding for us. He's continually trying to impede for us, impede our salvation. Every single time, every single time we sin, Satan accuses us. And Jesus stands up and he intercedes and he says, they're mine. I bought them with my blood. I died and rose again for them. They have trusted in me to save them. They are just. Day and night, Satan tries to impede and day and night, Christ continually intercedes. Don't ever forget that. There are two people working 24 hours a day, one against you and one for you, and Christ will not lose. This all happens day and night for all believers around the world. That is the constant battle happening right now and until Christ comes again when Jesus destroys him completely and banishes him to the lake of fire. When you're having harsh words with your wife or your husband, Jesus is interceding for you right then and there. When you're tempted to be selfish and greedy, he's interceding for you at that moment. He's countering the accuser. When you're being tempted to doubt the magnitude of his grace, he's interceding. And when Charity was sinning by marrying unbelievers and abandoning her husband, 
When she was not listening to the counsel of others, guess what? Jesus was interceding for her. Aren't you glad that this is what Jesus does? Now, for the sake of time, when it comes to verse 3, I'm going to direct you to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, which says that we have died with Christ and that our lives are hidden with him in God. But take some time. I want you to take time to do what I've just done with the first couple of verses. All right, this is a long tongue lock to cover. I want you to search the scripture. See where these truths are taken from. Do this with other songs, whether they're new or old. Do this with songs that we sing in the church. But let's read the last verse, and then we'll listen to the song. The the verse says, Behold him there, the risen lamb. Just a reminder that we always need more songs about the resurrection of Christ. I I recently visited a church, uh, a website, not personally, but I looked at their website of a church that's down on I Avenue. I'll leave the name nameless for now. But on their website, they have a partial explanation of the gospel. I think it's meant to be intended to be full, but it's not. Do you know that nothing of the resurrection was mentioned? They talked a lot about Jesus Christ dying for sinners, but the resurrection wasn't mentioned. Do you know that the resurrection, without the resurrection, there is no gospel? It's amazing, but I say that, um, I'm not saying that they don't believe in the resurrection. I think they do, but you have to have that in your understanding and talk of the gospel. He says, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. And I, I like how she personalized it. He's my perfect spotless righteousness. He's the great unchangeable I am. She's saying Jesus is God. I am. She affirms the immutability. Jesus cannot mutate. He is unchangeable. He is immutable. Um, And she affirms the deity of Christ by using the the name I am, that Jesus is the self-existing one. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the king of glory and grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood, and my life is hid with Christ on high. In Colossians 3.3, it calls us to imitate the glory of Christ in light of his death and resurrection and his coming again. Because Jesus died and was buried and rose again and is coming again, we are called to imitate the life of Christ. My Savior, she says, and my God. What a beautiful song lyrically. And what a Christ-exalting song that we can sing in church. And I pray and hope that as you are directed to Christ and nourishing your faith as we sing it. As, uh, and again, um, we're going to listen to a couple quick versions of this song. Uh, Christian's going to cue it up, and then we'll sing it together. But I want to remind you that the melody that we sing today, it wasn't composed until 1997. That's just like 26 years ago, or 27 years ago, by Vicki Cook of Sovereign Grace Music. Prior to this, the hymn was not that popular. And when it, when it was sung, there were various melodies used. Um, they weren't a celebratory. It wasn't until she did this rendition, and then it circulated around for a few years. Uh, and it didn't come actually popular until Christine Getty sang it and did a recording of it. Some of you may be familiar with Keith and Christy Getting, uh, Getty. Uh, but once again, uh, Vicki Cook is the one who wrote the tune that we all know and love and uh, eventually became popular. And it just goes to show you that when it comes to hymns, a well-written tune can be an amazing vehicle to spread the gospel message. But the power to change lives, it's never in the tune. It's in the truth of God's word. Let's listen to a couple minutes of each song. The first one is by Kristen Getty. Kristen, if you'll just play two minutes of this, and then we'll listen to the second portion.
ever strong and perfectly A great high priest whose name is love Whoever lives and pleads for me My name is graven on his hands My name is written on his heart I know that while in heaven he stands No tongue can bid me thence depart No tongue can bid me thence depart When Satan tempts me to despair That was Keith uh, and Christy Getty's version of Before the Throne of God. And that uh, particular melody and that version of the song is what really launched the song into popularity. The uh, next version that we will listen to is actually uh, the version that we sing in church. It's way more upbeat than that. And uh, this was written by a group called Modern Post. And... um, but this is the version that we sing, and we may not play it exactly like it, uh, but this one's a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more of a, a rock version. When you listen to those songs, the first one, you can, uh, musically speaking, you can hear this a little bit softer, but it's also written in a 3-4 timing, which is 1-2-3, The next version that we listen to is written in a 4-4 timing, which is uh, a little bit more standard, 1-2-3-4, So it's uh, just a little bit drawn out, a little bit longer, but uh, let us sing the song now, and then we will close in prayer. Uh, Let us sing before the throne of God and let us declare that we have a great high priest in heaven. Mm -hmm. 